I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and dealmaking is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and dealmakers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a dealmaker's DNA. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to a, another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. I have a very special guest, someone I've uh, gotten to know quite well over the last couple of years, Kevin Wachow. Welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. So, so Kevin, I, I know you as the managing partner of the, uh, the Toronto office of Grant Thornton. I know you have a storied background, which we will get into, and, and obviously, with your accent, we also share some common roots of being from South Africa, which we're going to talk about. So take, take me back. What did your, uh, your, your upbringing look like? Let, let, let's start at the beginning. Okay, sure. So first of all, so I think it's you have a stronger accent than you, but it's probably more of an asset. So yeah, 100%. Think, right? It's a great I accent. I for the positive in everything, even though people don't understand me. But uh, yeah, so I grew up in a, in a coastal city uh, called Durban. One of the, one of the few, uh, you know, yeah, fellow you Durbanites. Know and I think back then, and I grew up in the early 70s, but really life for me when I knew what was going on was probably the 80s. And I love the 80s. We'll talk about that, hopefully. But growing up there, was, I think it was about 500,000 people. You had a view of the sea and the ocean and the weather was amazing. But it was also, um, it was interesting times. I mean, let's not kid. I grew up in apartheid South Africa, but it was really the last few years of it. So, I mean, I would say at a younger age, I probably got to see quite a lot of what the world can be like for some and also make decisions that what's right and wrong in the world and get to see that when you're 10 or 11 and see some of the injustices and what it meant to stand up to it. But, and then, you know, just growing up there, it was, a, it was actually a very tight-knit community. And what it kind of taught me was a couple things, that there's some good things in life, there's some injustices in life, but there's also some good things in life and also to you know, being in a smaller community in a smaller city, there's actually quite an entrepreneurial spirit in that environment. And people were trying to do things. And this is, don't get me wrong, this is before technology. This is before computers and internets and computers back then were crazy. But this is before the connectivity. You still had this um, social connectivity. Like you had more in-person connections with people in the 80s. You had enough of the technology to have fun with, like the music and things like that and television, but there wasn't too much where you were, it was overboard. So you had a lot of time and space to think about things and your interactions were very personable. I mean, it's interesting you say that there was this like kind of entrepreneurial environment because I know that in the 80s in South Africa, we were a year behind everyone and just getting the new releases of movies. I mean, TVs we got late, all the technology we got late. Like, why was it that we were behind? Yet, I agree with you. I mean, if you look at the South Africans that have made their way a, a, across the globe, and let's use Toronto as an example, there's you know tens of thousands of us here, and they've been very successful. So there's something in the spirit of a an immigrant, I believe wholeheartedly, and and b something that that the people from South Africa came with that allowed for a very creative mindset. What, what do you think that was? It's a very interesting question. We could talk about it forever, but there's many parts to that. There isn't one straight answer and it's multifaceted. I think, first of all, growing up in an environment that wasn't stable, and let's not kid, when I say not stable, I mean, you knew that at any point in time, if there was civil war, you were packing your bags, your bag, if that, if you were even lucky to get out of there with very little money, because there's monetary control, 
and you were taking your head with you. You're taking your skill. So let's just make that clear. You're living in a very unstable environment and you're living in an environment, and I hope this is not too sensitive, but you're also kind of watching your back because there was crime and violence. So you, you, you had to appreciate life, but you had to be very careful. So you didn't have a lot of, you dream big, but not too big. You had to be careful. And you also had to have another dream. You had to say, this isn't your permanent residence. One, and I'll, I mean, I'll be controversial here, I never really thought of it that I had a right to be there. And it's another longer story because I didn't like the injustice. But two, you also knew that things might not go so well from a socio, socioeconomic perspective and you might have to leave. And in some ways you wanted to leave. So you grew up with that psyche, number one. Then you brought up a very important thing is that you, you did feel a lot of stigma, but you also felt you were behind. And, and it might sound like a small thing. You're right. You would get, you'd be watching TV series three or four years from before. TV, you know, what happened is the government tried to control your mind and they tried to control the press and they tried to have one TV channel. So you rebelled against that in a way that you try to open up your mind even more and read more and listen to international broadcasts, the BBC World Service. You, try, you always try to emancipate yourself. And so with all of that, that you, you, you weren't sure about longevity, but you had the stigma that you were behind. So you weren't, but we weren't stupid. We, you know, we were lucky that we had the British education system that taught us some good values and grounded us. So we, we kind of knew what we were doing, but we were kind of behind. And what that did, it's kind of like when you look at people who don't, aren't given everything in life and they have a stigma and they need to prove something to the world, you actually fight a lot harder. You go out there, it's like a street battle. You're the underdog and you want to show everyone, no, you know what? I am smart. We are smart. We know what we're doing. We can do it. And that mentality, that kind of was your inner juices that gave you adrenaline to go out and do something and prove. And you always were. And then you go immigrant, immigrate and you like that. And you, you've got an accent. No one understands you for a month. You've got to change how you talk. Oh, you came from Africa. That's third world and blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, it isn't. So that's the irony. Oh, you had an education. So you're always trying to prove something and that adrenaline pushes you forward. So I, I want to go back to that. You mentioned, you know, that you were lucky to have a British educational system. It's so interesting to me because people do think wrongfully that, you know, South Africa is a third world country. I mean, there are facets of it that are very third world, but I wouldn't classify it as a third world country. But you look at the people that have come across from South Africa, which again, let's just use Toronto as an example, but I think this, this, this is true to many places of the world where, they, where we went. The education levels of these individuals were unbelievable. I mean, you know, it's, I, I joke that if you meet a South African in Toronto, they're going to be an accountant or a doctor. <laughs> and that's kind of what they went into. And I've had long conversations with my father about how, you know, when he was younger, those were the decisions. It was always what professional degree are you going to go after? Maybe just talk about, A, the, the educational system and why it worked so well when other infrastructure in South Africa worked so poorly, and B, the mentality of higher level education in South Africa at that time in the 80s, 90s. I'm going to give two perspectives on that, and they might seem different, but they, they mesh together into something. And don't get me wrong when I say this. I'm not, I'm not, I think the British colonial system had major issues with it too. But one thing about the educational system is this. The first thing is it was a very strict discipline system. And we all had to wear school uniforms and we all had to look the same, right? We all wore the same clothes and we were, and it was very strict discipline. You were late for school, you're late for a class. You basically got hit with a sugarcane stick and I'm not kidding. And you were scared of your teacher. So it taught you discipline and sports was also regimented. It was compulsory and you had to do that after school. So you, were, you learned to do a lot of different things. So there was the discipline part of it. 
But here's the other thing that people might not realize. There's one other part of the education system that really was different, and it was this. It wasn't about rote learning. It wasn't about spoon feeding. What they did, and I still can't figure out how, one day I'll figure that out, they taught us how to think. Everything was about thinking and problem solving. So they would make any test or exam exceptionally difficult. It was never a straightforward question, right? In fact, the passing grade, if you got above 50% your whole life, if you got 51% as your score your whole life and you never failed any year at university, you actually were kind of a genius. Some of the smartest people I know didn't get through university for the first time. They made it exceptionally difficult because they were challenging you all the time and somehow teaching us, and I haven't figured out yet what it was, to make us think and problem solve. And it was those skills that I learned because oftentimes I go into meetings, calls, I get into situations, I don't, and you know this, Alain, because we've had one together, I can barely understand the question and I'm on the spot to give an answer. And what I'm doing subconsciously somewhere is I'm figuring out a problem-solving technique to come out with something that's half intelligent and then keep moving things forward. And that I think I learned at an early age. And again, it's something intangible that I still haven't figured out what it was. You have three kids that have primarily grown up, I guess, in the educational system in, in Canada. How much does it scare you about, you know, everyone wins an award, the whole coddled sensitive nature of, you know, our schooling system compared to literally when people think, I mean, it's, it's hard for people in Canada to imagine being hit with a stick in the 90s. I mean, I, I imagine it, it probably continued into the 2000s as well. So what's your viewpoint on your children not growing up with that same level of discipline? And B, what do you do as a parent when you know that that is such an important part of the creativeness that results in successful people? What do you do? It's a great question. So here's what first I'm gonna say. So I actually look at my kids' curriculum in their school and the standard, I wanna say something, the standard of education has excellence. I have kids in grade nine or 10, they're learning stuff I learned in university and the, the educational system's excellent. But there is something to it that the smart kids feel they have to get 100% or 80%. And then they get upset if they get 92 and not 100. And I go through this with my kids all the time. And my wife and I just laugh at it. But here's what I'm going to say. There's something we haven't talked about. It's not just about everybody getting an award or everyone getting a high mark. There's another thing. is We as human beings are very resilient people. And the Here's what South Africa probably taught us at a young age at school. Because the reality is you go into the workplace or you go into business and some businesses fail and some succeed. And some of the most successful people I know, some of the most successful people I know, their first business or two failed, but that was the biggest learning experience of their life. And then their resilience, they picked themselves up and their next second, third or fourth venture was great and on and on and on. So as a young kid, what you learn is you learn that the world isn't fair and you learn that you fail and you learn, not that it's okay to fail, but you learn something like this. It's not what happens to you that matters. It's how you respond to it that matters more because it builds character. And it's unfair. You see, some people are, I worked my butt off and I didn't succeed initially in life. And I saw others who were gifted or whatever, didn't work that hard and got all the awards. Okay, great. So I learned, and you learn in life, the teachers tell you, look, not, you're not, everyone is good at something. It might be small. It might be intangible. I remember these stories. And then later on in life, other things happen to all of us, but it's character building. You know, it's interesting. You, you, you speak about, you know, other people around you winning awards. I mean, the one thing in South Africa that people don't know about is 
it's very hierarchical in school. Someone has colors, someone doesn't. And for those that don't know what colors is, maybe you can explain, you know, sports was real. Like, like that was a very competitive space for most boys and girls in South Africa. They were not shy to tell you where you stacked up against other people. Where I think in Canada or in North America and other parts of the world, it's, it's like we, we want everyone to feel equal when that's just not the reality of life. And it scares me. I'll tell you that the reason I'm asking you these questions is because I look at that with my own children and, and people have heard me say this before. I am highly against the participation medals. I think it does not teach the right lessons. I agree with you. And just for the viewers here, just, I mean, just to picture this, right? So I said earlier, you all go to school and you wear a uniform. So mine was a blue blazer. But the kids who excel at academics or sports, it's in your face and it's only 10, 20% of them. They have special stripe colors now, or they have a badge or a medal on their, on their jacket blazer. All day, every day. On their collar and it's in your face. And then some people who are gifted, they wore a brown blazer and that meant that they were like genius. I don't know what it was, but my point is it's in your face. Okay, so that's fine. Let them have that. It's okay. And then you mentioned another thing, sports. So, so sport was, was competitive and it was the same thing, but it taught you a couple of things. First of all, you weren't always on the team. At a young age, you're 10, 12, 13, 14, you're on the reserve bench or the, the coach is yelling at you in front of everyone, your parents and everything else. But you're taught to be brave. It's another thing you taught about sports. Most of the sports were team sports. So you learned it in life, something like this, that it wasn't actually, you could be, you could be the most brilliant sportsman person, sorry. But here's the thing. If you didn't play the game strategically with your teammates and your colleagues, you were all doomed. You were done. So you can have five superstars that played rugby, 15 people. You can have six superstars and nine average players. But if one person doesn't pull their weight, if one person gets offended and hits somebody and gets sent off, you're now 14. You try to play 80 minutes or 70 minutes left of a game with 14 people against 15 big people. That is the toughest 70 minutes of your life. And afterwards, you get in the dressing room and you're 14 or 15 and the rest of your team, they're yelling at you because they've just, they've beaten up. They've got bruises. They've got blood everywhere. You've just let them down because you had no discipline. You try that for one and don't think it didn't happen. And you, you, you'd be lucky. You went to school the next day and you'd be getting, everyone would be yelling at you because these kids just had the worst 70 minutes of their life. You had to be disciplined. You were in it together. So there was a bit of individualism but there's also this team sport mentality. Yeah, accountability I think, is, is really accountability. So let's transition. Obviously, you finished school in South Africa. You went to, you went to varsity in South Africa. You became an accountant. I mean, one of the questions I do want to ask you is why are there so many goddamn accountants that come from South Africa? What is it about you know the pushing into that direction? There's a few very simple answers because it's a big question, but people don't understand. So a couple of things: the kids in South Africa wanted to go into business but wanted to have a profession to kind of get them in there, went into accounting. Why accounting? There wasn't an MBA school. So there was no such thing as an MBA. So the only really business, and it wasn't a business school. So the only business degree was accounting and it was seen as an entry to get into a business at the grass, grassroots level and get to understand business. And then 95% of those CAs, they were called CAs there, didn't stay in accounting. So, so 95% went in with no intention of staying in the profession, it was seen as a stepping stone. And, and that why that was. There's one other reason, is that most kids who grew up in the 70s, 80s in South Africa, grew up in very uncertain times. I spoke about that earlier. And I wasn't kidding that you knew one day you're packing one bag and you're leaving. This is just the reality. 
And so when you leave, you're not taking money with you. That's the other thing. This money, and you're young, you don't have money, but you're taking a skill with you. And what happened was the South African CA exams and, and curriculum was actually world-renowned and it was a transportable skill. So a lot of kids like me made a decision at 14 or 15 that, yeah, business is the right thing. Whether if I stay in South Africa, I'll use this to get in somehow. But the other thing too, it's what I'm taking with me. It's not in my bag. I'm taking it in my head and I'm getting on a plane and I can start working the next day. And that's why you did it. Otherwise, just so that, you know, I would have been a lawyer, but the law, legal system there was very different and it would have set me back quite significantly. Well, I mean, thank God for you that you, you didn't line up in law. That's a, that's, a, that's a tough degree. Tough job, long hours. So let's transition to, you know, your move to Canada. When was that? Why? You know, why did you make a move? I know we've talked about it a few times, but why, why Toronto? Just give, give me a little bit of color around that. A great question. And it's, it's an interesting dilemma someone goes through at a young age. So you know you want to leave, things aren't great. And here's the thing. So I speak a few languages, but I really only speak and write and converse in English, believe it or not even though people say I've got a funny accent. But so the thing is, is that, and then you're in South Africa and it's like, like you can't, where do you go? You can't get in anywhere. So here were my choices. I could apply for Australia. I could apply for Canada and I could probably go live in, I could go live in Israel, but I, I know Hebrew, but I'm not fluent. So that would have actually been very difficult. So I probably would have ended up in Australia or the UK. I'd actually never thought of the US. It actually didn't appeal to me. I'll be honest. It still doesn't. I wonder why now. <laughs> no, but this was 25 years ago. So that's Yeah, no, I know, I know. And just so everyone knows, when this podcast comes out, we're talking about, it's November 5th. So we still don't know who the, <laughs> the next president is. This will come out. <laughs> but so the, truth of this, the truth of the matter is I just got engaged and my fiance's family were moving to Canada and they were putting in papers and they asked, the, they said, Kev, do you want to join? I said, great. I said, gave them my passport, some certificates and a thousand rand, whatever that was in the day. And they signed me up. And then nine months later, I had a medical and I was in Canada. I'd never been to North America. It's just get some, I'd never touched snow in my life. And I'd never been below minus, I've never been below five degrees Celsius in my life. But here's what I'm going to tell everyone about the weather. You haven't heard me complain about the weather because I won't. Oh, you'll hear me complain many times. No, the weather's the least of our problems in Canada. The weather means not, my, of the three Canadian kids, they don't complain about the weather, not once. The weather means nothing. It's a misnomer. Right. Canada is an amazing country because it's a civilized country. It's modern. It's a modern country. It's got a stable government, a stable economy, friendly, good, very good people. But here's another thing. Its foundations are based on good moral and ethical values as a, as a country. And I'm very proud of Canada generally and exceptionally more so through COVID. And when we look at our friends south of the border or the mess in Europe, I've never been more proud to be a Canadian. And the one thing I want the audience to know, you know, Len, you've taken me down the journey of South Africa, and I don't mean to say this in a negative way. I very rarely think about South Africa. I'll just be honest. I don't know if I, maybe I'm Canadian. I don't know, but I'm busy here. I'm having fun. Canada's been amazing. And this is what I know. This is my future. It's our future and it's my kids' future. And I'm just grateful that Canada had me. I mean that. Yeah, no, I look, I, I was like you, born in Durban. And uh, unlike you, I do complain about the weather. I, this is the greatest country in the world, bar none, not even a question, but the weather does suck. <laughs> but uh, it's amazing for me. I still, although I consider myself Canadian through and through, and I came here before you, you know, hence the accent, I'm still very culturally South African. There is, a, there is an element of, of South Africa that you just can't take out of someone, I believe, 
And uh, I hold that near and dear. And I think that that's what the, the beauty of, of Canada is that I know a lot of people from a lot of different places in the world that live here that all consider themselves Canadian, but still feel comfortable enough here to identify with their roots as well. And I think that's what makes Canada unique. It's so accepting to immigrants and people of different cultures. And, and I, I think that's a great part of Canada. So you arrive in Canada, you come as an accountant. How do you move up the ranks so quickly? You know, like you're in a very senior role within your firm. You did that fairly quickly. I mean, I know you well. You're one of my advisors and, and, and trusted accounts as well. And clearly you're brilliant guys relates to that. But being competent in the rules of, uh, of IFRS and GAP, in my opinion, aren't enough to become a leader within an organization. So outside of knowing the accounting rules, what is it you did right along your path to kind of move up? And don't be modest. Don't be too modest. It's okay. I'll give you this. So listen, we talked earlier about the, the psyche of a South African and being the underdog and maybe having things to prove in life. So you come to any country you come to and you come And what year did you come? Just uh... 2001. Here's what I'm going to say. I came in 2001 and actually 2001 was more of a stressful year than COVID. But just so that everyone knows, there was the dot-com bubble had burst and there was a recession and then there was 9-11. That was not a fun year. And there were layoffs everywhere. And obviously it's not as bad as this year, but it just didn't feel good. And it was a, it's my first year here. That probably molded me as well to come in, in in turbulent times. And what it made one do is dig deep, work hard. But that, you're right, Elaine, that's not enough. What, what life's about, life is about relationships, right? So there's very different facets about how you define people. And I will say, I don't know, I shouldn't judge myself, but I don't go around saying to everyone I have a high IQ. I don't think I do, actually. But what I think I got into before it was defined was EQ and emotional intelligence. What life was about was about relationships. So when I would go and work, whether it be at our firm, whether and whoever it is, every single person at our firm, young, old, different generations, different levels. And when I worked with clients, it was about forming relationships of empathy and care and really trying to understand their business and help them and deliver service, but not just deliver the general service, really understand what makes their business tick and have honest human level conversation, not pretend to be anything you're not, not to pretend to be arrogant, a specialist, anything like that, just to be a, have a human bond and connection with people and help people. And to me, that's what probably helped me the most in that somehow I just, maybe I think I watched my brothers do this in life and I learned from that. And so I did that. And what happened was people around me and my, much more, my clients, our clients became my advocates. What do I mean? Our clients kept calling us and giving us work. Yeah, we, we did our work just as good as anybody else. I'd like to say better, but it's probably just as good. But they gave us work because they liked us. They trusted us. And they wanted to help us because we they knew we wanted to help them. So that was the interpersonal IQ, interrelationships that is vital to success. So if I was teaching anyone in a young generation about anything, you can go be a specialist and you'll be just as good as the next person. What differentiates you? Why does someone want to work with you? Yeah, I call it the giving a shit factor. Like, I think it's really important that for our clients, like I always say that you may outbrand us, you may outexperience us, but you will not out care us. You won't out hustle us. I genuinely give a shit. I take a lot of pride in providing the best level of service possible. And finding solutions to help people, right? And I work with rules. Like Elaine, the first time I met you, I'll never forget, I won't go into the confidentiality of it, but you asked me about something. 
and it was out there. Like it was, there wasn't anything specific guidance. It was new. It was interesting. It got me interesting. And he said, Kev, can we do this? I just met you. And I didn't say no. I could have said no because they probably, but I said, gee, that's interesting. Let's try and make it work. And then I went back and I found every rule I could to put something together that never existed before and said, hey, and then here, let's try this. And it was, it made it work. Like it's all the rules are there. That's not the issue. It just, you've got to try help someone. That's what it's about. In fact, I, I have a little thing and it's a bit crazy with me, but if somebody, if I meet someone and they say, can I do this? And they say, no, that no, I just as a little game I play, that no means yes. So someone says to me, you know, you can't do that. I've just met them. First time I've asked, nope, you can't do that. I, to me, that actually strengthens my results is to go back and find a way to do it. Just don't just say no, try do something. So, so let me ask you, you know, you, you touched on, and I didn't preempt you on this, but one of the things I discuss most often is this idea of EQ being more important than IQ. I firmly believe that. And you, you mentioned uh, this idea of EQ. This podcast is called The Dealmaker's DNA because I, I, I inevitably will always ask the question, how much of, of you is, is born versus kind of bred? Are you, are you a believer that you can build EQ, IQ? How much, you know, how much of, of, of you is nature versus nurture? I'm a big believer that some people are just born with inherently more EQ and IQ than others. And, and there's nothing you can really do. Not to say that nurture is not an important piece of the puzzle, but I am a huge advocate for nature being a bigger piece of the puzzle. It's uh, interesting. I haven't given it a lot of thought, but I'm going to give it some thought now. I'll think on the spot. I can see both. I can have some empathy and put myself in your shoes. I can see what you're saying. Because some people have it. Fair enough. Same as IQ, by the way. But here's what I'm going to say. Let's talk about me personally. So I have three older brothers. My father passed away when I was very young. And I have an amazing, brilliant mother who taught me incredible morals and values and ethics. And then I have three entrepreneurial brothers. And they're older than me and I watch them. And there's no question in my mind, and this isn't, you know, we've all lived in different cities for 20 years. I'm talking the first, talking over 20 years ago. There's no question in my mind that watching other role models, including my mother and my three brothers and my cousins and everything else and how they interacted and how they thought and how they responded to situations and what worked and what didn't, just watching and observing, sometimes consciously and sometimes subconsciously, there's no question that that benefited me and nurtured me. No question in my mind. There's no ways I would have known about how to interact with people and what's right and wrong and about morals, ethics, values, helping others, finding solutions, being creative, being entrepreneurial. I might have something in my DNA, but it might have been idle and it might never have come out or it might have come out the wrong way. But those around me molded me subconsciously. Totally agree. I'm just agreeing with you for once, by the way. No, no, no. I, 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 people misconstrue what I mean by the nature and nurture discussion. I always say that the nature component of my argument results in you being in one cluster of the tree, right? Where it's like good at math, bad at sports, good at this, bad at this. But in that cluster, there's the billionaire and then there's the drug addict. So nurture is what delineates where you land up within that cluster, which require, you know, all things kind of in that cluster being possible. But the variability is still an immense uh, amount. But the nature component is still there leading you to here versus like you're not an artist, you're not an athlete, you're, you know, you land up in this, this little one hundredth of the tree with thousands of possibilities still existing within that 100. No, and listen, I'm with you. And there's definitely nature to it and there's definitely nurture, but I'm going to change the conversation a little bit. I'm going to turn the tables here. 
Another very important concept in life, because you touched on accountability, but there's something that comes before accountability and it's called free will. It's a bit of a biblical concept actually. And we as human beings have the most beautiful, wonderful thing that was ever given to us. We actually can make choices. It's called free will. I could choose to stop this recording right now and I was going to say go to the beach, but I can't exactly go to the beach, but I could go have a sleep. My point is this. We have free will, but with free will comes responsibility and accountability and comes risk and reward. And so what I'm going to say is that many people don't grow up with natural skills, but if they exercise certain good choices and if they have good role models and if they're good people and they stick to their values and they try hard, they might not always succeed, but they likely will succeed six or seven times out of 10. And by exercising that free will, there's no question that one, and we've, we've seen it in our common lives and everywhere else, there's no question that you can better your life and you can do it in a short period of time by exercising the free will, making the choice, nurturing the skills. You, yes, you're born with certain natural things, but some people have no nat- nature or very little skills naturally, but they try so hard, they nurture and they get somewhere. Here's what I'm going to say. The one thing about being human beings and particularly being in the environment we're in is there actually isn't one, it's the most beautiful thing about it. There isn't one size fits all. So you actually might have low skills in one area and high in another or whatever the mix. It doesn't even matter. You can be so successful. One, yes, there's luck in it, but I also believe you make your own luck in life. But yes, there's luck. Yet I actually believe there's some divine intervention sometimes too. But here's what I'm going to say. You the world helps those who help themselves too. There's no question about it. And you're not going to, don't think it's linear. So you're going to go try hard. You're not going to, and if you fail, that's amazing. Think of that as a blessing. Learn from it. Pick yourself up because you'll be so proud when you overcome adversity. Well said. So, so Kevin, before I let you go, you, you have the, I guess, a, a very interesting task of managing a whole bunch of partners, right? That's a, that's a, that's a more unique position than most where, you know, in, in normal organizations, you have the C-level executives, and then you have kind of a very well-defined hierarchy in the accounting, law firms, et cetera. It's a very different structure. Talk to me about what you've learned about leadership in that unique scenario. Are there, are there things that people should focus on as they embark on becoming better lead, leaders and strive to become leaders themselves if they're not right now? Just tell me some of the lessons that you've learned along the way. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a similar conversation with someone, a younger professional yesterday, and they were saying, how do they go out and get new business? And they use the word sale. And what's their pitch? And I said, stop that. Stop, 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 stop. There's no selling. There's no pitch. I said, what do you mean? I said, just be yourself. They were, really? So what you learn is you learn, the, actually, the more higher up you go, the more people skills, empathy, being calmer, understanding others, listening, having an open mind, seeking multiple perspectives, not thinking too quickly sometimes, those skills become very important. So your, to answer your question more directly, what do I learn? I learn that relationships are important. Every human being wants to feel important and has something that they're very good at or they need to have, they need some reinforcement that they could. They could be brilliant and they could be experienced. They could be younger, older, doesn't matter. Everybody needs a helping hand. So what's important is the relationship building, but that's just not enough. You've got to have empathy. You've got to put yourself in the shoes. You've got to listen and you've got to show a lot of respect. And what I say, and you see a lot of call it partners or you call it people in senior positions or executives and they're doing well and they're earning a lot. Here's what I'm going to say to you. All of that could end 
tonight, tomorrow. What do I mean by that? Well, you could have a health problem. Good luck trying to solve that problem quickly. By the way, I think every problem is solvable. But my point is this. Appreciate everything you've got. Don't take things for granted. And whatever you do, never have a big ego and think you're better than anybody else. Because you might be today. It doesn't mean you're going to be tomorrow. And the other thing I'm going to say is I'm not, we shouldn't define ourselves by what we achieve. I think we should define ourselves by the legacy we leave. How many people have we developed? What's the goodwill we've left behind? That's the intrinsic value that continues for generations to come. And that's what people did for us. And that's what I think is our responsibility to do for the world. So if you run around and you think you're doing great, one, it can end quickly. Trust me, Elaine, you know these stories. But two is you might not be so great because here's what I'm going to say. You don't take your checkbook to heaven. I wish we would, but we don't. I don't think we do. Can't imagine we do. So what do we leave behind? And you know what? It might not be money. It might be we talked about our kids. If we've taught our kids to be good people, to think and treat others well, we are billionaires. And let's not kid ourselves when you look down south in America and all the nonsense in Europe. If your kids go into the world for the next 70 years, 80 years and treat people well, you've done a really good thing in life and be proud of it. Maybe that's your skill. Maybe that's what you've achieved in this world. Kevin, I have a whole bunch of more questions for you, but I think that was so well said that I want to leave it off right there. Thank you so much for, for participating. I'm glad that we discussed Newton, you know, the topics that we landed up discussing. For those that, that really want to continue following along in your journey or want to contact you directly because some of the things that you've said resonate with them, what's the best way that they can get a hold of you? You can look me up on the internet, Kevin Moschel. Um, I work at Grand Thornan. You can contact Yelan and I'd be happy to chat and I'd be happy to listen and see if I can help others and help and learn from you. Whoever wants to contact me, I love talking to people. I love learning new things. I could be in a different office every day. I could do a different job every day. And I just know one thing. I don't know how much longer I have left on earth. Hopefully it's long, but it'll never be enough to learn. And so please contact me. I'd love to hear from you. And I'd love to, I'd like a new friend, if anything. So I appreciate that. Thank you very much. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.